Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week I've been thinking about losing control. For instance, I really like molasses cookies, right? And this has presented a major challenge to me now that I work at home. My wife will buy the cookies because she loves me and she knows that I love them. And then she'll leave them on the kitchen counter where at some point in the day I'll happen upon them. In the office, it's more difficult to get cookies. There are a few hurdles I need to overcome to get my hands on them. I have to go to the grocery store across the street, or maybe there are some in the vending machine, but I have to swipe a card and push buttons. These are minor hurdles, but they create enough resistance that I'm not always eating cookies. Here at home, that's not the case. I'm just going to see them, grab three or four, and head to my office. And then, a few hours later, I'll be back again. Social media is the same way for me. There's all this stimulating stuff in my newsfeed waiting for me. Politics, news, opinions. These are the kind of things I love talking about, obviously. And there are some things in there that make me frustrated and straight up irate. And when an opportunity to set someone straight presents itself, it's as difficult to resist as those fresh cookies on my kitchen counter. But the result is rarely what I want it to be. In the rush to make a point, I end up making assumptions, misdirecting my frustrations, alienating friends and family. I make mistakes, and I'm left feeling like I've lost control. And when I look at the larger conversations taking place on these platforms, on Facebook and Twitter especially, I'm left thinking that our entire society has lost control. I've mostly managed to rein myself in on social media, but only by being hyper-vigilant. And frankly, it's exhausting. I find myself wondering why I'm even on social media. If it takes so much work to not do it wrong, is there really any hope that we as a society can do it right? Or do we maybe just all need to work a little harder to keep our hand out of the cookie jar? For the next two episodes of this podcast, I'm going to be looking at what exactly is happening on social media right now and what's happening to our minds and our democracy as a result. Next week, I'll be speaking with the director of the new documentary, The Social Dilemma. But first, in this episode, I'm talking to science and technology journalist Jacob Ward about the reasons I can't stop eating cookies, and how that impulse, paired with social media, might just lead to the demise of American democracy. Or not. He's way more hopeful than maybe he should be about this. Then, later in the show, I'll bring on Margot Van Singel to talk about her contribution to CrossCut's latest series, Facing the Fallout, which looks at the ways that everyday workers are coping six months after the start of the pandemic. Okay, I've got a few programming notes here. Like I said, next week I'll be talking to director Jeff Orlowski about The Social Dilemma. After listening to this episode, go to Netflix and watch that documentary. It's really powerful. And if you have questions for him, send them to me at talks at crosscut.com. Also, I have to remind you that we'll be launching our new Inside the Newsroom live event series on Wednesday, September 23rd, with a conversation featuring some of the other journalists behind our Facing the Fallout series. You'll get an inside look at how these stories were reported. Amazing work from the team on this series. I just, I'm really proud of it. And if you want to read it, 
Just go to crosscut.com slash focus. That's F-O-C-U-S. And then log in for that conversation. And speaking of live events, this podcast is finally getting its own live virtual event. It's about time. And I'm really excited about this. I'll be joined by New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristoff and fellow journalist Cheryl Wu Dunn. The Pulitzer Prize winning couple will be talking with me about their latest book, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope, on Wednesday, October 28th. That is going to be a great conversation. For more information on both of these events and to RSVP, go to crosscut.com events. Okay, on with the show. I'm on now with Jacob Ward. Jacob is a science and technology journalist who currently works as a correspondent for NBC News and is the former editor-in-chief of Popular Science. His work addresses some of the thorniest problems facing humanity today, with a focus on the social problems that are both fueled and fixed by technology. He's also the host of a new four-part series called Hacking Your Mind, which is currently airing on PBS. In it, he looks at the part of human nature that is responsible for our mistakes, shows how corporations and political leaders take advantage of this flaw to their own benefit, often at a cost to society, and offers up some insights on how we can engineer better outcomes by leveraging these same flaws to ours and society's benefit. A couple times during the program, Jacob delivers a quote from a pair of social psychologists, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, to bring focus to the sprawling problem he's tackling here. We make many of our most important choices based on what can only be called cognitive illusions. This is embarrassing for us to realize, but the evidence for it is undeniable. Jake, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Okay. So first off, I'm always curious about where a project starts. So you worked on this project for three years. Um, can you tell me what was the catalyst for it? Where, what was the question that you started with? Well, usually when you get involved as a quote unquote host, right, which is sort of, which is my official title on this project, you, you typically go through this strange kind of courtship with the producers where they, they bring you on Skype is how it used to go. And you, you know, and they see if you're the face they want. And it's a, you know, a very sort of surface level process. In this case, I instead got a a call from uh, the producer, Carl Biker, who has a long history at PBS doing front lines and uh, American Experience projects. He's just a really smart guy. And I had never met him or heard of him. And he said, you know, I have this project. It's my life's work. It's about what I think is the most important uh, challenge facing the human race. And that's the frailties of our own brains. And I'd like to talk to you about being part of it. And I said, well, that sounds amazing. I would love that. And he said, so can I come to you in Oakland and can we just sort of spend time together? And so he flies in on a Saturday. I pick him up from the Oakland airport and I take him to Mountain View Cemetery in the middle of Piedmont. Uh, I live in Oakland and, I, and it's sort of the local place. We go to picnic and stuff. And in the 19th century, it used to be before public parks that cemeteries were the place you would go. And I've often found that the difference for me between people I really enjoy hanging out with and those I don't is that people get creeped out by it or they really want to go and walk around and really find it enjoyable and can even eat a, eat a meal there. And so I was like, let's just see if this guy's cool with, with cemeteries. And so we went and we walked around the cemetery for the afternoon. And he said, you know, uh, he, he began to explain, you know, there are, um, you know, have you heard of Kahneman and Tversky? And I sort of had, but hadn't really. 
and he said, um, you know, they basically revolutionized the study of human behavior in a series of papers in the 1970s. And from them have come all of these incredible researchers, and I've got them all on uh, tap, ready to go for this story I want to tell about decision science and behavioral science and the ways in which our unconscious minds, our ancient most instincts are driving the modern world in ways that we don't really detect. But that has created a set of manipulations that we are kind of, uh, uh, you know, unable to resist. And I want to explore that through a multitude of stories and go all over the world. And do you want to be part of this? And within a few months of that conversation, we had gone to Tanzania, we had gone to the UK, uh, we were going to go to Puerto Rico, you know, we were going all over the world to start thinking about this stuff. And, you know, the fundamental concept of the show is we have ancient evolutionary instincts given to us by the environmental pressures of the human race that allowed us to stay alive 30,000, 40,000, mm-hmm. 70,000 years ago. And we have carried them with us into the modern world in such a way that they make most of our decisions for us. We don't realize it's happening and we're getting manipulated a lot of the time by the modern environment, by companies, by political campaigns, by marketers. And the show's concept is to basically establish for the audience, you are not in control of your brain in the way that you think you are. Here is the user's manual by which your unconscious mind makes decisions. And here is the way that companies have gotten hold of that user's manual and are using it against you. And here is then how you can reclaim agency in your life by mastering some of these concepts and understanding your own vulnerabilities. Hmm. And so this four-part series starts off on really kind of a sort of personal level. Uh, it's a, it, it feels a little bit innocuous. Um, I, I think that the, the first example that you bring out is one that has to do with diet and has to do with fats and sugars and salts mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. how we are programmed to seek those things out and consume them quickly and as much as possible when they were a scarcity and now they aren't a scarcity. And so our brains are kind of causing a health problem for us based on how we were programmed to survive, right? But then but then the program really turns to a much more political angle to it, where right. this where this becomes about whether democracy can work, which I think mm-hmm. is an interesting st- starting point and ending point. But you started working on this. Um, it must have been right after the election of 2016, right? Was that a part of the the sort of the catalyst for why you guys wanted to do this work? The project actually got buttoned up and funded and everything in early 2016, you know, at a time when the concept of Donald Trump becoming president was not even a flicker in anyone's imagination. He was still just part of the the primary scrum. You know, he was one of 20 people right lined up on the stage. Everyone, myself included in media, assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And we thought mm-hmm. that this was going to be just sort of a footnote uh, in in history, this story, you know, this this piece of media, you know, what we were making. And then suddenly I remember I remember we were in uh, Los Angeles on the beach shooting polling places during the primaries, thinking about uh, talking about how your ancient mind makes a lot of your voting decisions for you. And that was the first time I ever heard anybody say 
you know, things are terribly wrong with this country and only Donald Trump can fix it. And I thought, oh, whoa, I'd never heard that before. Then he wins, right? And, and the next morning after his election, we actually flew to Arizona to do a long scheduled, long planned interview with a guy named Robert Cialdini, who uh, has written uh, of a seminal book on persuasion called The Principles of Persuasion. And mm-hmm. he, uh, and we got to ask him, well, wh- why do you think he won? Um, and, and he had, he trots out all these amazing things in the, in the uh, program about um, his concepts of, of things like social proof. When other people who look like you do a thing, then it, that thing becomes irresistible to you. And it turns out that the marketing that Obama had pioneered with putting people behind him when he's speaking on the lectern so that you can identify yourself among those people that Trump began to deploy that as well. Trump also had pioneered the thing of swinging the cameras around, yelling at the cameras and saying, turn around, show them how big the crowd is. And then they'd turn, pan the the crowd. And that, it turns out, Chaldini told us, was a way of triggering this ancient evolutionary instinct to do what other people in your tribe are doing, you know, all this stuff. Anyway, I remember we were in the airport getting our bags out of, off the, the carousel to go do Cialdini's interview after Trump had won. And we all, you know, everyone was a little shell-shocked because we just sort of had, you know, everybody was so taken by surprise uh, with this. And um, and we we all kind of said to each other, this, it turns out, is going to be a really important documentary to make because we, we are seeing in the election of Donald Trump and in the ways that his campaign deployed the things that we are describing in this show, we are seeing an opportunity to really describe not just some theoretical uh, you know, facet of human behavior, but we're able to actually describe the way it is happening to democracy now. Yeah, it absolutely is. And um, it does succeed in really breaking down what is difficult to break down right now. I, I think that being at the height of election season in 2020, it's very hard to not get swept up in a fervor. Oh, mm-hmm. of whatever side you are in this, or even if you're not on a side and you're just watching all of this unfold and, you know, not just the campaigns, but also the state of crisis that we're in. Um, it, it is a challenge to the human brain. So I just kind of want to break down a little bit about like the core sort of arguments here that really yeah. undergird what you're, what you're talking about, and then maybe get into some of the examples. But there, there's a kind of toggling that happens in your mind. And you talk about being on autopilot. Right. And that is where errors in judgment come from. Mm-hmm. And that the solution, and I'm going to give it away here, So, yeah. uh, but everybody should still watch this. But the solution is pumping the brakes and engaging your slow thinking mind. Right. And I'm, I'm curious about how this reporting has affected you. Oh, yeah. And... Do you feel like you are in a state of autopilot less now? So yeah, so so the the broad theme of the research we are profiling in this documentary is that there is what what uh, researchers have come to call a dual process in your mind, and that is you basically have two systems. This is something that, that researchers have been theorizing about for a long, long time. Um, some of them studied it in vision, some of them studied it in hearing, some of them studied it in, in uh, all, you know, touch, all these different things. 
What it basically comes down to is that you have a system for making automatic decisions and a system for making considered decisions. And Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, in his acceptance speech, basically announced his intention to go off and start thinking about this. And then he wrote this famous book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And he's describing, again, something that lots of researchers have looked at, but he really has uh, helped to kind of uh, name and describe really clearly. And what he's basically describing is you have a fast-thinking brain, which makes the vast majority of the decisions for you. It does it on autopilot. It does it in an, a super efficient way. It doesn't cost you energy to use it. And it is very rules driven. It's not terribly flexible. And so the example, for instance, is let's say you and I are sitting, you know, in a cafe or something, right? And a snake comes, you know, into our, into somebody's vision, yours or mine, right? Um, and this could be anything. This could be a guy with a knife. This could be a, you know, a fire licking across the rooftop, whatever. My face and your face, it turns out, are incredibly effective and efficient automatic systems for recognizing danger, right? So I see the fire and then my face becomes instantaneously a mask of horror. You instantaneously pick that up and we don't have to say, you know, you don't have to say, Jake, you know, are you all right? And I say, Mark, as a matter of fact, there's a snake here. And you say, oh, Jake, what kind of snake? You know, we don't have that conversation, right? I go toppling backwards. You're up and on your feet before you even think about it. Your brain makes decisions in emergency situations for you using this fast thinking brain. Now, that system they think is at least 30 million years old. So it's had incredible amounts of time to be revised and improved. You know, it's been tested, battle hardened. Then there's your slow thinking brain. And they think that this one really only emerged about 70,000 years ago when we were all as homo sapiens living on the continent of Africa. And then somebody, some of us began thinking, geez, I wonder what else is out there and began thinking about death and where do we go when we die? And, and, you know, what if I had magical powers and begin to have these secondary, larger, higher consciousness kind of thoughts. And that's the brain, the part of our brain that decided to get up and walk off the continent of Africa, right. And figure out what else to do with ourselves. That's what, that's what people have theorized. And that brain, which we've carried into the modern world is our slow thinking brain that is creative. It's rational. It can think things through. It does the, the tough math. It assesses risk it's supposed to, you know, all these things. But what Kahneman and many researchers have figured out is that in the modern world, we make the vast majority of our decisions with that ancient fast thinking brain. And the slow thinking brain is really just an error correction system. And it and the problem with the slow thinking brain is that it's lazy. It doesn't like to get involved unless it's obvious that it's needed. And, and while we like to think that we are the slow thinking brain people that we are creative and considered and pondering things and being thoughtful, the thinker, right? Rodan's thinker. We are not, we are instead just like, you know, snakes fire all the time. That's how we operate in the modern world. So to your question, have I been improved by understanding that? So no, fundamentally no, right? I mean, I am no better than I was at the beginning of this show at, uh, you know, engaging my slow thinking brain versus my fast thinking brain. I still fall prey to the same stuff I used to. The thing that all of these researchers tell us, you you cannot hope to control the instinctive decision-making apparatus, but you can 
set yourself up for success in not triggering it. One way I think about it is I think of it like, imagine that I have an allergy to peanuts, right? Now that I know I have that allergy, I don't beat myself up for it. And I don't try and muscle my way through eating peanut butter. I don't eat peanut butter, right? You know, to set up your life, to accommodate what you understand is a totally unconscious, uncontrollable, autonomic frailty that you have, a vulnerability. So, you know, one of the, I think, the most important discussions around behavioral science right now has to do with um, with partisanship, right? With this, mm. with this idea of alternate and separate realities and um, alternative that, facts, right? Alternative facts and the um, and the the and this sort of us us versus them dynamic, which you talk right. about and really parse very well in the series. Um, and kind of get to the evolutionary science behind that as well. This evolutionary kind of inclination, um, right. Facebook is accelerating it uh, mm-hmm. or um, or facilitating it, uh, if you will. Certainly make and money, so, making money off it. That's right. To make money off it. And not just Facebook, but, but pretty much all sort of social media platforms. And so right. what we're talking about when we're talking about um, doing the equivalent of, um, of, of getting people to quit smoking, getting people to stop drinking, is getting people to stop assuming that the people you disagree with are evil, mm-hmm. right? Is that mm-hmm. kind of what we're right. talking about here? Yeah, I think that's right. Or at least understanding that your brain wants to group them outside of your tribe, and that on that basis, you're, it's going to make wild assumptions about who they are and what they're about. So there's a researcher at Yale named Yarrow, uh, sorry, Yarrow Dunham, fascinating guy, mm-hmm. uh, and the nicest guy. There are always such nice people dealing in these horribly dark topics. He deals with kids between three and six, and he can sit them down, uh, have them be randomly assigned one of two shirts, orange or green, and then begins to show them images of kids in orange and green shirts in these sort of ambiguous circumstances. So one kid will be uh, sprawled on the ground in front of a swing in one shirt, and another kid will be behind him looking sort of concerned. And it turns out that within 90 seconds, these kids, depending on which shirt they are wearing, will either say, oh, that kid... Uh, behind him pushed him off the swing because he's part of the other group. He's part of the orange group and I'm in the green group. Or, oh, that kid in the green shirt is just about to help him up. His friend fell and he's going to help him up. They're presented with the same facts, right? The same scene. And yet they have opposite interpretations of what it means and the motivations of the people involved. And it is entirely built on tribalism. And, And that tribalism, it turns out, is carried through uh, to modern adults making political decisions. So uh, another Yale researcher, Jennifer Richardson, did this incredible study before Trump was ever on the map in which she primed a bunch of white voters with the information that they were about to fall out of the racial majority in the United States, according to census data. That's going to happen around the middle of the century, right? Mm -hmm. So she primes them with that information and then asks them a bunch of political questions. And it turns out that when you prime them with that information as opposed to another control group that didn't get that or got sort of neutral racial information, 
the the primed group that knows they're about to fall out of the racial majority becomes wildly more conservative on a whole range of topics, not just right. race stuff, but climate change, fiscal stuff, random stuff from across the you know landscape of of political decisions. And what all of that is showing us is that there is a part of our brains that long ago was very good at at understanding who was in our group and who was out of our group. Trying to get to a place of security with the people you're with was a huge part of surviving long ago. And we even in the show see it in monkeys who have this instantaneous ability to recognize who's in their group and who's out of their group, who they're in danger from and who they're not. We share that same circuitry with them, it turns out. And all of that is is now you feed that into the modern political landscape where not only do you have political actors, you know, uh, looking to divide us up because that's an effective campaign strategy, but you also then have this engine like Facebook, like other social platforms that make money off of our attention. And you have this perfect storm is what these people say of ancient circuitry modern capitalism spinning us around in this washing machine. And so it's so hard, I think, right now to have a rational conversation who doesn't with someone who doesn't think like you do politically. But you also have to remember that there are, there are so many hardwired things and so many externalities right now making that even worse. Hmm. You know, after watching, I think, episode three... I was convinced that I was going to quit all of my social media. And then I watched episode four and you mm. informed me that actually the only way through this is through social influence mm. and that there is a role for everybody to play in modeling for other um, for other people in the community. And then I was like, I have to stay on Facebook. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that you have to stay on Facebook, but I do think that the same, I mean, the, the point of the show is that the same mechanisms that have been kind of mutated by the modern world can in fact also be very helpful. I think there are ways to, to use this circuitry well. The problem is it's not the easiest way to make money. <laughs> You know, I mean, this is the problem with system one and system two, right? The slow thinking brain and the fast thinking brain, the slow thinking brain, your cautious, considered, reasonable, rational one is a terrible customer. That brain is thinking way too much for you to be able to sell it something quickly. It's much easier to sell to our fast thinking brain and to trigger that automatic stuff. Um, and so I think that either through social pressure or through regulatory pressure or through something, right? We're going to need to get to a world where we want to bring out the best in one another and can make money doing that. But so far we are, we're in the bottom feeding uh, phase of, of uh, behavioral capitalism, it seems to me. So Jake, I've got just one, one more question for you to, to end this off with. And this has been a great conversation. The series is really interesting. And I, I feel like I've, I've learned even a little bit more from you here right now. You know, you start the series with a sense of hope that we can find a way to, to leverage these natural flaws um, mm -hmm. towards our benefit and towards society's benefit, which when you did it. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm interested to see where this goes and, uh, and to see, you know, if it can happen because right now, uh, things feel pretty dreadful. Sure um, do. 
it's hard to envision a, a positive outcome anywhere in the near future for this country. Hmm. And a lot of that has happened in the last few months. And I'd imagine that it's happened really since you wrapped most of production on this. Do you feel more hopeful now than you did when you finished production or less? And where is your head at as far as what is ahead for us as a country? Yeah. So so one, one thing that kept happening to us, multiple experts that we interviewed brought up independently of one another that famous phrase that's often attributed to Martin Luther King, uh, the moral arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice, right? Which I think I and many people have always taken hope from that idea that somehow we naturally move in this positive moral direction. Well, these people all say, mm, we don't know that that's true, right? We don't know, first of all, where we're at on the arc of history, History is long. We've only been recording it a very short period of time. We don't know which way it goes, right? And we certainly don't know that it bends inexorably toward justice. So there are days when I feel very discouraged by that and think, boy, all of this, democracy, getting along, you know, <laughs> you know, justice, all of that is sort of an experiment. It's a, it's a brand new, very glitchy system. I mean, that's what people say about the slow thinking brain is that like, it's only been around about 70,000 years while the, the fast thinking brain has been around for 30 million and has been battle hardened and we know how it works. Our, our systems of thinking creatively and rationally are very new and full of glitches. So it's easy to get discouraged on that basis. On the other hand, I mean, if I drive from here to another place, I just uh, got back from covering the wildfires in Oregon and, and drove 300 miles right uh, through the smoke. That whole drive, and this happens to me now all the time, I'm, I'm there in the highway lane going 70 miles an hour, and the, the woman driving in the lane next to me, she's staying in her lane, right? And we, and we just slide past each other. We're just, you know, a foot apart at this incredible speed, right? We could endanger one another like that. And yet we agree through this system that we have built as a society to stay in, each, in these lanes, travel together in this place, you know? We're perfectly comfortable, right? So I look at all of that and I think to myself, with voting, with criminal justice, with the way we've built highways, there are a lot of problems. There are a lot of flaws. And we're going to have to work hard on, on improving all of them. On the other hand, we're not having to live in small tribes around a campfire anymore because we really have banded together. We have accessed our slow thinking brain. We have built better, smarter, more robust systems for being better people. You know, huge numbers of people still live at a subsistence level in this world, and we got to change that. But there's a lot of people that don't, and that's an extraordinary accomplishment for the human race. We have the, the math and the circuitry and everything else that can allow us to make decisions uh, the right way. And so in the long term, I do feel hopeful about the human race. Uh, one of our researchers that we interview is a woman named Mazarin Banaji, and she congratulates every group she speaks to. She says, you are the first group of diverse humans in our species history where no one's going to die today. You're not going to kill each other. No one's going to, you know, kill somebody else in this room for being different. That ha that's how we used to live as humans. And we've gotten better, you know, and I think we're going to continue to get better in that way. But there are these little bumps in the road. We're making money off each other in weird ways. We're gathering power in weird ways. Um, there's some bumps in the road, but, but I do feel excited about our capacity as humans to build a better world. Hmm. All right. 
That's Jacob Ward. The series we've been talking about is called Hacking Your Mind, and it can be seen right now on PBS. Jake, thanks so much for coming on the show. Mark, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Hello, I'm Knut Berger, editor-at-large and resident historian at Crosscut. My job here is to cover the intersection of history and politics in the Pacific Northwest. And right now, we're at a moment of historic convergence. Northwest history is full of social tumult, idealism, and exclusion. It's rich with experience and warnings. The recent protests for social justice have given me the chance to search our complicated heritage for something relevant to the moment. I found it in the statues and place names that speak to the region's long history of racism. History tells us something about our current pandemic as well. After the first case of COVID-19 was reported in Washington state, I looked back to the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918. I started researching for lessons in that experience 100 years ago. Did people follow science back then? Did they refuse to wear masks? How did the epidemic change the Pacific Northwest? What was the aftermath? These are the stories I get to work on at Crosscut, trying to understand the present through the lens of history, trying to look ahead with lessons learned or unlearned. I couldn't do this work without Crosscut, and Crosscut can't do its job without your support. We count on our readers, listeners, and viewers to help us dig into our region to keep you informed and engaged in these historic times. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com donate. And thank you for your consideration. Now, back to the show. I've got Margot von Singel here now. Margot is a reporter on the Arts and Culture Desk at Crosscut, and this past week she contributed to a series of stories we're calling Facing the Fallout, in which we look at the adverse impacts of the pandemic on workers in Washington state. Margot wrote about restaurant workers and the challenges and risks that they have faced as communities have reopened and diners have returned. Margot, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thanks for having me. So I want to go back to the beginning of the pandemic here. Can you tell me how hard hit were restaurant workers in the early days of the pandemic? I would say they were among the hardest hit and also the earliest hit. So if you look at, you know, the unemployment numbers or the unemployment claims in Washington state, you see a big spike in the week of March 15th. I think about 30% of uh, those unemployment claims were um, people who work in restaurants and hotels, so people in accommodation and food services. So, you know, they were they were really hard hit from the beginning, and that really has not let up uh, until today, basically. Hmm. So where are we at today then? Because we have seen, you know, there has been reopening. Um, are some of those jobs coming back? Uh, what's the What's the percentage of workers that are that are getting paychecks now? So overall employment levels in the in the leisure and hospitality sector, which is kind of a little more broad than just restaurant workers, it's also people who work in galleries or museums or, or that kind of stuff. And employment levels statewide are still down 32%. Um, that's compared with 25.6% nationwide. But then if you look a little more closely at people working in the food industry, food service workers, um, the unemployment claims are still kind of uh, the same as they were early on in the pandemic, so around like 15 to 17 percent. So basically, the sector is just not snapping back like uh, some other uh, industries have in Washington state. 
You write that that many of these workers, the dishwashers, cooks, bartenders, servers, that they were relying on this $600 a week federal supplement to survive. But as we all know, that ran out in July. And, um, you know, Congress has been teasing the idea that that um, they might bring some version of it back, but that's gone nowhere. And you, so I'm wondering if you could walk us through the experience of, of one of the people that you talked to. There's a there's a woman named Shay. Um, how has she responded to losing that lifeline? She's just basically extremely stressed out. Um, she has gone back to work in a sense that she is picking up shifts here and there, but there's just not as much work available. She's making less sales, so there's just fewer tips. So she's she's making a lot less money. She is volunteering at a farm to, uh, you know, get boxes of produce, which helps. But she's basically, uh, she told me that she's basically used up all of her savings. At this point in time, she's just looking at the future and just not knowing what will come next. Wondering, you know, if I get a job offer that might be full time, what if I, you know, still don't make enough because she has to take it. And if, and if she doesn't take it, she'll lose her unemployment benefit. So that's kind of what she's facing. She's told me she's scared of, of becoming homeless. Why would she not take a job if she were able to get one? There's a couple of reasons why people in general, I think, would not, um, you know, take a job right now. And and one of them is you can you can work all those hours, but a lot of servers, you know, make a lot of their money in tips and people are just not going out that much to eat or to drink. And uh, the tips are just aren't there. So even if you're hmm. there at work and you get the hours you're still, according to these servers, not making really enough to make rent or at least not the same as you were before. And then the other choice I think that people are thinking about is just, okay, I can go back to work, but I'm exposing myself potentially to this, you know, life-threatening virus. And my family, in some cases, people are, you know, going home to a family. So that's also something they are thinking about. So so I think those are, are two major reasons why people would be not necessarily too excited about getting a job offer right now and, 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 and being able to, you know, or facing the choice of going back to work. Is she an outlier here? Are most people, you know, what, what's your read on that? I think she's actually pretty representative in a sense that she really loves her job. Uh, a lot of the servers that I spoke to or that are communicated that I communicated with really love being among people. They uh, love being social. They love their jobs. It's not a question of not wanting to be at work, you know? I, I think in that sense, it's, it's very, she's very representative. And also being afraid of, you know, when you're at work of exposing yourself, that is a thing that I've heard <laughs> come back hmm. time and again, really. So, you know, that and also making less money because there are fewer tips. So the workers who do end up going back to work, they're going back to a very different workplace. As you said, you know, the tips aren't there, but there also are some different things that depending on uh, restrictions that are in place. Could you just mm -hmm. walk us through, like, how is eating out different now than it was pre-pandemic for, for those of us who have, have not gone dining out, which includes me? Basically, the the, the biggest change I think that you'll see if you step into a restaurant um, and if you step in that is because there's a lot more outdoor dining uh, taking place right now so there's a maximum 50% capacity so basically tables are spaced out a little more um, and you won't be sitting super close uh, to people or at least that's the idea right you're supposed to indoors only dine with people from your household um, there are you know alcohol wholesales are restricted I think uh, after 10 p.m. 
plexiglass uh, barriers that people have put up to protect the servers. So, so there's that kind of stuff. You obviously also have to wear a mask, but you're, you can take it off to eat. Um, and that's kind of on the, on the customer side. Um, mm -hmm. For the servers, there's, there's some other changes that, that, that people who don't work uh, in the industry might not think of, right? They're just kind of constantly cleaning if they're, if they're not, you know, serving people uh, a lot of cleaning. Uh, and what I'm hearing is that the, the chemicals are pretty harsh. Uh, one mm. person told me that she had some, some rashes on, on her hand from it. The one person told me, which was interesting, it's just like you have to run back and forth more because things are not on the table. So salt and pepper shakers, you know, they're not supposed to be on the table and they have to be sanitized and that kind of stuff. And the biggest thing that I'm hearing, um, you know, the biggest difference for service is telling people that they have to wear their masks or reminding them to wear their masks, which is which is a struggle. People feel pretty stressed out about that. They rely on tips and they're like, well, you know, I don't want to make people upset with me by asking them. And some people just feel like they have to do it over and over again. And it's it's stressful. So it's not only that they're afraid for their health, but they also mm -hmm. are making less money and the work is, it seems considerably more taxing than it was before. Yeah, I, I would say that that's what I'm hearing, that it is more taxing. And um, I talked to, to a professor at the University of Washington who did say that um, all of these things together. So, you know, exposing yourself potentially to a virus, kind of worrying about, you know, can I go back to work? Will I get my paycheck? Um, can I stay in this industry? You know, that kind of, um, you know, insecurity, that kind of stress will, will also have long, long-term mental health effects. And I, and I think that's really, for me, one of the key things that came out of reporting this story is, um, you know, it's not just people are not just afraid for their physical health. There's, there's going to be mental health effects um, probably a lot, you know, maybe sometime even after there's a vaccine, we're going to see the, the effects of that. Hmm. So what in the end do the people that you spoke to want to see happen? I think it really varies. It's quite interesting. I had one server tell me that she was, um, she basically said, if, if I could choose, we would all shut it down everything for like, you know, two weeks, maybe a month and kind of like tough it out. But for that to happen, um, she needs to get unemployment benefits. Her bosses, the people who, who run the restaurant she works at, they, they need to be able to pay their rent, which is what she told me. She's like, you can't just stop. You can't just stop the world like that. But if I, if I could choose, that's what I wanted. But then I think in the end, you know, zooming out a little bit, I think people are basically looking at Congress to say, okay, what's going to happen here? Are there going to be more expanded unemployment benefits, PPP loans? Um, there's also a Restaurants Act in the works. So I know that some um, some people are looking at that. So so basically, can, can we get some um, stimuli going again? Because particularly going into the winter, uh, things are, are not, you know, looking great. And people are saying we need, we basically need more help. These, these, these things were put in place as temporary fixes, and they were good, but they need to be put up for, for longer term. All right. That's Margot Van Singel. You can read her story and the rest of the Facing the Fallout series at CrossCut.com. Margot, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Margot and to Jacob Ward for coming on the show this week. The episode was engineered by Resty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. 
You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs>